We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We've moved right along this morning and come now to our message. But first, we're going to read the Scriptures. And uh, Naomi said, I think you forgot to read them last time. Well, this always happens when we move the Scripture reading out of its normal spot. So it's not really my fault totally, just a little bit. (laughs) All right, we're going to go to Ezekiel 23, and we have to finish the reading of that chapter. It was a lengthy chapter and kind of an adultish chapter, if you know what I mean. And uh, so we'll start in verse number 22. Ezekiel 23 and 22, it says, Therefore, O holy boss, says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you, from whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Picad, Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses, And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around. You see what's happened is they committed spiritual adultery against the Lord by going to all these other nations at various times and being in league with them and different things, worshiping their gods, of course. That was one of the main things. And, uh, they, you know, they might decide, well, I don't like that one, and they turn away from these various ones. And the Lord says, well, you went to them, they're going to come to you now. And this whole section is about the judgment that God poured out on the northern and on the southern kingdoms of Israel. And God says this, I will delegate judgment to them. Now, that is a fascinating concept, isn't it? I will delegate judgment to them. God's going to judge, but he's going to use somebody else to do it. And they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove your nose and your ears. Wow. And your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. So here they're just being spoiled down to nothing. Just all their stuff is being taken away. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry, brought up, I'm sorry, brought from the land of Egypt, so that you will not lift your eyes to them, nor remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, surely I will deliver you into the hand of those you hate, into the hand of those from whom you alienated yourself. You see, their lovers became those that they hated, not an uncommon feature. When there's an illicit love, then there is a hatred and the guilt. They will deal hatefully with you, take away all that you have worked for, and leave you naked and bare. The nakedness 
of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. I will do these things to you because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles, because you have become defiled by their idols. There's the issue, idolatry. You have walked in the way of your sister, the northern kingdom. Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Okay, your turn now. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. This is something like what the Lord talks about, how if once knowing the things of God and then throwing them behind your back, it's like a, a dog returning to its vomit or the, the pig to the sty, you know, having seen the glory in the, of God and the cleansing from sin and to turn back from that. The latter end of that is worse than the first. So there is a level of judgment, a level of accountability that's added to those who know the truth and makes the outcome worse if they turn away from it. Verse 36, the Lord also said to me, son of man, will you judge Ohala and Ohaliba? They declare, then declare to them their abominations. I never can quite get those pronunciations right. There's too many vowels in there, too many O's, I guess, but Uh, Bear with me. For they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons, whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. No wonder they deserve judgment. There's no question about it. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For after they had slain their children for their idols... I still can't get over that. On the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed, thus they have done in the midst of my house. Furthermore, you sent for men to come from afar to whom a messenger was sent. And there they came. And you washed yourself for them, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and Sabaeans were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in adulteries, will they commit harlotry with her now and she with them? Yet they went into her as men go into a woman who plays the harlot. Thus they went into Ohala and Oheliba, the lewd women. But righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood, because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, bring up an assembly against them and give them up to trouble and plunder. There's the giving over idea, the giving up idea. Turn them over to the results of their own sin. Verse 47, the assembly shall stone them with stones and execute them with their swords They shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land that all women may be taught not to practice your lewdness. They shall repay you for your lewdness and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. Then you shall know 
but I am the Lord. Ezekiel 23. Yeah, that's, that's the school of experience. Much better to learn from the Word of God than from the Word of experience when it, when it has to do with judgment. Well, let's turn our Bibles then to the portion from which we draw our message for today, and that is in Philippians and the second chapter. <clears throat> Philippians in chapter 2. I ran woefully short on time last time, so we're going to finish this message, and I've made some revisions, particularly in the second half of it. So this is really part two of Philippians 2, 14 to 18. Let me read the verses and remind us where we have been. <clears throat> Actually, I'll start in verse 12, reading through verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So remember the apostles spelling out something of what it looks like in the believer's life to have the, the salvation that God has put in worked out of us. Okay? We work it out with fear and trembling, but God has put it in us and he's given us the the will to and the doing of his good pleasure. So he's working on our desires, he's working on our behavior, on our attitudes and our actions in order to work out our salvation for his pleasure and for his glory. And the first way that Paul says that we should do that is that we must not complain or dispute or argue. And uh, I could preach this whole thing again because I suspect that during the intervening week from last week to this week, you might have had a complaint rise up within your soul. Um, when, um, you know, when a doubt or a rebel sigh arises in our hearts, we ask the Lord to check that, don't we? We're prone to wander that way, aren't we? The hymns I'm just alluding to there tell us, remind us rather about that being prone to wander in this area of complaint. And this is very important because if you go back in your mind to your reading in the Old Testament, you think about how many times the people of Israel complained about their you know, whole accommodation, about their water and about their food and about not having enough meat. And, oh, we wish we could have the onions and the leeks and the garlic in Egypt. And we want to follow somebody to go back there. And, you know, Moses, you take too much to yourself. And so on and so forth. They complained, 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 and God was very displeased with that. Does that teach us something? That does teach us something. That, that, that level of discontentment, that kind of dissatisfaction that the people there expressed is something that is worthy of God's displeasure, worthy of his punishment, and therefore, being learners like we are, not wanting to learn by the school of hard knocks, but rather to learn by, uh, could I say, 
book learning that we put into practice, book learning. We learn from the book and say, you know what, if God has said that it's not wise and good and it's actually punishable for me to be a complainer, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to learn, yeah, a word to the wise should be sufficient. My dad would always say that, you know, and yeah, your dad too, right? I'm figuring out how do I get to that point where I'm wise so that this word is sufficient. <laughs> a word to the wise is sufficient. Well, no complaining. We talked about what complaining is, uh, an utterance made in a low tone of voice, you know, muttering, behind the scenes talk, murmuring, uh, and on all that sort of thing that we looked at. And that is forbidden to us. Um, you know, somebody said something last week, I think it was, which I was thinking in my mind, but I don't think I really said. It could be good to say it now. You know, there's the kind of complaining that we think about that's easy for us to identify when we're adults in children. And so there's the kid kind of complaining. But then there's the adult kind of complaining, which is a little more sophisticated, but it's the kind that we're talking about here. The easy kind is, you know, okay, deal with that. You know, get over it. Um, you know, grow up. But there's some sense in which you have to grow up, too, from the adult complaining as well. And when you're in a situation where you're focused on kind of complaint-worthy things, you think, in your mind, then you're going to lead on into the next thing, which is disputing or arguing, which is a kind of broad term. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> which... Uh, is a sinful, you know, expression that comes out of this conflicting or or complaint uh, type of situation that you find yourself in. There are evil reasonings. Um, <clears throat> you know, how are we going to, you know, you've got a complaint. I don't like how things are, so let's just go back to Egypt. You know, let's just go back there where we had it comfortable. We, you know, we could just worship our gods over there. We could have, you know, a, a sufficient amount of food. Yeah, we had to slave away for the Egyptians, but at least we, you know, we had some kind of security or, or provision for us. And so they begin to grumble and talk and talk amongst themselves and formulate plans, and that's the evil reasonings that we're talking about here. So what we want to do is we want to sit and ask ourselves, am I really discontent? Do I, do I, am I really expressing discontent with where God has put me? And remember, we said there's a, a sinful kind of discontentment and a positive kind of lack of contentment where you're trying to better yourself, you're trying to advance, but you're not doing so in a complaining fashion. You're just saying, look, this is where I'm at now, and for me to get from here to a goal, I need to go through the intervening steps to get there, and I'm going to trust God to provide the resources to do that, and I'm going to be happy at each step along the way. You know, I can't be a... Uh, I can't be a medical doctor until I've done high school and medical school and, and, uh, or bachelor's degree and, and sciences and then medical school and then residency and maybe more residency and maybe a fellowship. You know, by the time I'm 50, I might get there. <laughs> Not quite, but um, you just have to go through those things. So you can't say, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be discontent at each step of the way, sinfully so. You're going to say, that's just the process that we have to do. You know, there's, there's, not, there's not two ways around it. It just is what it is. If you're going to become good at a trade, you have to come up to, you know, the starting points of that and, and, and 
work your way up through it, and so on. But you don't have to have that sinful kind of discontentedness, that selfishness, that displeasure, that grievance, uh, that reasonings, uh, those reasonings or negative uh, contemplations that come out in arguments and conflicts and stuff like that. <clears throat> we talked about, very importantly, the graces of submission, contentment, and humility. Graces of submission, contentment, and humility. Are you there yet? Are, have you learned the grace of submission to the circumstances God has given to you? Um, just comes to mind right now. You know, the things that God has given to you are his present measure of what you need. That's what he thinks you need, okay? And he, uh, whether that's your individual situation or your work or the church, um, <clears throat> you know, you might say, well, I wish that we had X in the church. Well, if you don't have a person who's gifted to do X, one or more, then that's presently God's measure for what he wants you to be doing as a church. He might not want you to be focusing on that or this other thing or whatever, but focusing on the basics that you do have the resources for. So the grace of submission to what God has provided, the grace of contentment and thanksgiving to what God has provided, and the grace of humility to say, well, I'm, I'm just his servant. If he decides to give me this and that other tool to do my job, but I don't have this tool, well, I'm just going to have to use the tools that I have to get by until I can uh, obtain that other, that other tool, okay? Without complaining, without disputing, God's will must be, therefore, I will handle it as he intends for me to handle it. This is everything, by the way. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And I'm just thinking of circumstances, you know, like our, our brother Steve. Good morning, Steve. I know you're watching there. Um, content in your present situation? That's hard. I would not be find it easy to be content in a situation laid up like that, waiting to get casted and have my bones heal over the next six or eight weeks and then have some rehab after that and, and all of that sort of thing. Content in that situation, that's what God has ordained for you presently. Some of us have been sick for long periods of time, weeks and weeks and weeks. Are you content with what God has provided or are you grumbling and complaining about it? Everything is a circumstance in which we can do things without complaining and disputing. <clears throat> What's the purpose of all this? Well, we started to get into this last week, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We pictured ourselves as little points of light on a dark canvas, which is the world. Just like stars in outer space are those points of light, they are lightening, they are guiding. Remember why God put the stars in the heavens? To mark the difference between the seasons and days and years and all of that and to guide people. They are used for navigation and so on. <clears throat> That's what we're supposed to be, aren't we? Lights. Have you, uh, have you been a lighthouse to some poor soul? Have you been a North Star for somebody who needs to know the way of God? To be bright lights in the world is, is our purpose, that we might be blameless and harmless. The, the brightness speaks of moral uh, rectitude. It speaks of blamelessness and harmlessness. Remember we said last time, God is light, 
That means God is holy. There's no darkness in him at all, meaning there's no sin in him at all, no lack of holiness in him. And he says that you're supposed to be what? Perfect as he is perfect. We're to be lights in the world like he is light. The Lord told us that you know, you, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, you don't hide the light under a basket. You don't make the salt you know, not have its distinctive preservative uh, elements to it. Otherwise, it's useless just to be thrown out as the only thing it's useful for and to be trampled underfoot. And so we're in the process of becoming blameless and harmless and children of God without fault. I've, I've argued this uh, case before that we can't just rest on our laurels and say, well, I'm a sinful person. I'm always going to be a sinful person. Thank God for his grace. Uh, I'm going to be able to go to heaven. Wonderful. There's a sense in which that's true, but that's woefully incomplete. I am a sinful person, but God is making me a good person. I have been a sinner, but God is making me He's, he's justified me and declared me righteous, but he's also making me righteous in my behavior. He's making me blameless, less blame and less blame. He's not, I'm not going to be sinless, but I'm going to have less sin, Amen. right? Sinless in heaven, less sin now. So that by and by, I should be becoming like Christ. Truly, people should be able to look at you and say, that's a good brother, that's a good sister. Don't, don't be shy about using those terms if you use them properly, understanding in your mind. Not like the world says, oh, he was a good man. You know, he helped his neighbors and, you know, he, he worked and uh, paid his taxes and all that. That's just baseline expected of everybody. That's lawful behavior. That doesn't make you a good person in the sight of God. That's just what you're supposed to be doing. A good person in the sight of God is one who's been saved and is being sanctified. I'll say something more about that in a few moments. We are in the middle of a moral mess, we said, called the world. That should be obvious, I hope, obvious. Any any believer should be able to discern the vast difference between the world and, and us. The world is crooked. The world has scoliosis. It needs to see a serious spiritual chiropractor to be made straight again. Okay, some of you have had those bone crackers work on you. <laughs> they don't really crack your bones, okay. I don't want to give them a bad reputation. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. The scoliosis that the world has is incurable apart from the gospel of Christ. Amen. The crookedness, the out-of-lineness, the, the, <clears throat> the fact that it's not orthopedic, it's not straight, it's not lined up like it's anatomically correctly supposed to be is a problem. We're speaking, using medical terms, of a moral condition of the world. It's perverse. It's sinful. It's, it's anything that's out of line or opposes or contradicts God. It's that kind of crookedness. It's that which, although people don't recognize it, even people of the world recognize there's something wrong. And if they were to be able to see like we see what's wrong set over against in contrast with what's right, they would be able to see the glory of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, which gospel we enter into by personal salvation, by believing in him, turning from our sins, and thus we have our entrance um, visa into the eternal kingdom, into the 
heavenly kingdom, which will come down and be here on the earth for a thousand years as well. And when you look at those things side by side, I don't see how anybody could say that they wouldn't want what God is promising in the future. Yeah, I mean, there are some hard-headed people who will say, no, I don't want what Jesus offers in the utopia of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I'd rather have the communist utopia because there's no God there. Why? Because then they can live without the accountability of God. But to, the, to, a, to a reasonable person who has some background and maybe whom God, I pray, is working in their hearts who see this, the way things are, the way things will be, and they will say, I'd like, a, I'd like a piece of that action. They can get a piece of that action if they trust in Christ and they come in under loyalty to the king of kings who will reign in that kingdom. And they themselves will be straightened out and on their way to a straight world that doesn't have this crookedness, moral crookedness to it. Uh, Paul's not just criticizing his generation here. He's criticizing every generation that's just the same. Humanity hasn't changed one little bit. Technology might change. Locations might change. Um, Wealth might change. Peace might change, but people never change. Their natures are the same in terms of the unbelieving side of it before we come to faith in Christ. And then we can change, and then we can become good people. Um, Let's go on to verse 16, where the scripture says, holding fast the word of life. Now notice in my notes, I've put the headings in kind of a sequence. I start out with no complaining in Roman numeral one. Why the purpose, Roman numeral two on page four, to be bright lights in the world. By holding firm to God's word, that's the heading on page five. And verse, uh, page 6, Roman numeral 4, persevering to show ministry labor was fruitful. So I don't always do that, but sometimes you'll see that if you track the headings of the notes, they make kind of a big sentence, which really, in a sense, is the truth of the passage that's, that the Bible's trying to get across. So in this case, I've done that for you. And uh, now we move to the, idea, the reason or, or how we be become bright lights in the world, by, and that is by holding firm to God's word. Notice that verse 16, holding fast the word of life. That, I think, is a means by which we shine as bright lights. Now, let me just deal with an objection to this, first of all. Some translate this, and I think, I think the King James does, holding what? Holding forth the word of life. That seems to me to be a real stretch on the meaning of the Greek word there. Most translations now today take this to be holding fast, holding firm, holding strong, being steadfast. Okay, so it's not, it's not as if Paul is focusing on the, you know, the Philippians on the idea of being evangelists, like holding, this is how it's often been used and preached in the past, holding forth the word of life, giving it out like this. Yes, of course, all Christians are missionaries and evangelists. Wait a minute. Did I just say that? Listen to what I just said. All Christians are missionaries and evangelists. You may not be a missionary to South America or to Europe. You're a missionary to all the people that God has put you into contact with. You are an evangelist. 
All Christians are, yes. Not necessarily vocationally or even part-time in terms of employment, but the point of the passage is not that. Okay? It's not that, but it is true that we're called to be missionaries and evangelists all, but we're to hold fast that word of life, which works out practically in terms of not complaining and not arguing, not being that kind of discontented person, the kind of person who has received the graces of submission and contentment and humility and those sorts of things. To live blamelessly and harmlessly and faultlessly in the midst of the world. We do that. If we do that, then we're shining as lights and and we can be effective evangelists. Look, you cannot hold forth that which you don't hold fast. The liberal Christian denominations, and I use Christian very loosely in quotes or italics or whatever you want to do, quote-unquote Christian denominations, those liberal ones, which have denied the bodily resurrection of Christ, denied the substitutionary atonement, want to change the words of hymns that talk about the blood of Christ and all of that and just make it all about the love of God. Don't want to talk about the wrath of God against sin. All, all of that is a departure from the true, sound, fundamental teaching of the faith, and they're not holding fast the word of life. So what they hold forth offers no hope. It's just moralism. You know, do unto others as you would have the, the, the golden rule and, and be a good person and don't steal from people and all. And I mean, it's just mor- moral moralism. It's not Christianity after all. And so if you don't hold firm to the scriptures, there's no gospel to hold forth. I think Paul is saying you've got to hold fast onto this and only then will you be able to be an evangelist and a missionary. You have something to offer to people. All the mumbo-jumbo that's going on out there today is empty and meaningless. You come along and tell somebody, I can tell you for sure how to be rid of your sins and to have a home in heaven and to know Christ and to know God today. And they look at you like you're from Mars because you're not supposed to be able to do that. But in fact, you can because we have the book which has come from heaven, which tells us these things. All right, so I back up then and we deal with this holding fast. It's holding on. It's giving careful attention to. It's holding firmly on to something. It's the means by which we accomplish our responsibility to shine as lights in the world. Again, you cannot shine if you don't have the power from God to shine. No true gospel, there's no light there. It's just darkness, black light, you know, that purple, that's not, why do they call it that anyway? It's kind of purple light, isn't it? Uh, UV, yeah, right. So it's that, it's, it's not real light. You can't have, if you don't have the true gospel, you don't have real light. The word of life that he says to hold on to is the word of the gospel, and by extension, the entire revelation of the word of God. So how do you shine? You shine by holding on to God's word, which means clinging in belief to what God says and living in obedience to what he says in the scripture. Okay, So you shine by not only intending, but doing. Remember, God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure and by not complaining and, and all of those sorts of things. Those who believe the word, obey the word. Those who... Those who don't obey the word, they don't believe the word. 
no matter what they say. By their disobedience, they're telling you what they believe, at least at the present time. Complaining and arguing is still here in the mind of the authors. He writes these words, we shine when we act differently than the world around us. When we handle difficulties and conflicts differently than the world, when we, we don't argue and complain and we show the graces of submission and contentment and humility, if we don't do all that, if we, if we just look like the world, our light fades and it just blinks out and becomes just like the dark background of the rest of interstellar space, that moral mess that our world is. And then the Apostle Paul reflects on this final thought in the second half of 16 down to the end of verse 18. And that is thinking about holding fast to the word of life. If you do that, Paul says, I will be able to rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, he's not talking about literal, literal running like a marathon, okay? He's, he's not talking about labor like digging ditches. He's talking about the spiritual labor that he did to go to the Philippians, to preach the gospel to them, to take the beatings from the authorities, to be put in the, the stocks, to help the people like Lydia and the jailer and, and all the different places where he went and all the different things that he experienced as he, as he preached the word of God. If the Philippian Christians kept holding on to the word, kept believing, kept obeying, kept persevering, that would give Paul a reason to rejoice at the judgment seat of Christ because it would mean that his teaching and his work remained and did not disappear into thin air. How, how disappointed would you be if you worked all day on a project and then somebody came by and lit a match to it and burned it up if it was a woodworking project? Or, you know, you... You worked on your yard all day, and, and then some dump truck came and dumped a load of cement blocks into the middle of it, just garbage. You, oh, my labor. You know, I clean my room, and then my brother comes in, and he puts everything back on the floor just like it was before. All my labor is wasted. It's very disappointing. Well, take that and multiply it times like 100,000 when you're putting spiritual labor into somebody's soul and then you come back a little while later and their life is just has as many cement block chunks in it as it had before and the room is just as messy as it was to begin with and you say why did i why did i even bother i i don't have anything to 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 show for the labor the running the effort and energy that it was expended it's all for nothing. It's emptiness, worthless. Um, he, Paul wants to, to have fruit. He reflected on this in another way in, uh, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians. Remember, he was kicked out of the city after just a few weeks. I don't know how long exactly, but he was there in the, sab- on the, in the synagogue just for three Sabbaths and maybe slightly more than that, a few weeks on either side, whatever. But he leaves and he's like, Man, I am worried about the Thessalonians. I hope they hang on to what I preach to them. And I want to go back there, but I'm kind of persona non grata over there, so I'm going to send somebody else to go in and see how they're doing. And boy, when he heard back from Timothy, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I am so glad, he reports, to hear that you are still with us here in the gospel. 
Jesus said in John 15, 16, I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That's what the servant of God wants. It takes energy and effort to bear that fruit, to toil, to do the work, but it's easily worth it when the result is good fruit. Nobody would complain about all the labor that goes into a ministry. They shouldn't complain anyway, but if you came to the end of the week of vacation Bible school and many children came to know Christ, you would say it's worth every ounce of effort, every piece of work that was done on the building and decoration and preparing to teach the Word and providing the snacks and doing the cleanup and all of that stuff, a soul is saved. Amen. And we join them in their rejoicing, do we not? When there's strong fruit, fruit is energizing, it's encouraging. It's, but it's not only that, it's something we carry with us if we're ministers to the judgment seat of Christ. And you carry it there too. But the salvation of souls is not the only fruit that we're looking for. Paul in Colossians 1.28, the Bible says, wants to present every man perfect in Christ. And I park here just for a moment because fruit is not just getting somebody saved. Fruit is seeing somebody advance in their walk with Christ. It's getting them towards being perfect as their Father in heaven is perfect. It's making a disciple and baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded to us. It's bringing people together into the church so that they grow together in unity unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what growth fruit looks like. Hebrews uh, 13.21. Let me uh, just... Read that one. I don't have that one memorized for you this morning. Hebrews 13, 21. Prayer to God, may he make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's really what we're after. For each and every individual in the church to be made complete in every good work to do his will, that God would work in them, Sound familiar? Working in you so that you work out. Working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. That's the hope. The end goal is not Christians. The end goal of our ministry is not Christians. Does that sound heresy, like heresy? The end goal of our ministry is not Christians. It's fruit-bearing, serving Christians. Fruit-bearing, serving Christians. That's the end goal. You know, it's like when, you, when we talk about church planting church that's a church planting church, that's a reproducing, evangelizing church, that's a growing church, a living church, not just a building with a few people there. Where are you at on this kind of process, if you will? Say a three-step process. I have several examples in the footnote at the bottom of page 7. Have you been delivered from sin? Have you been developed in your spiritual maturity so that you can then be deployed into service? Where are you at? Delivered, developing, or deploying? 
Are you there? Have you been saved? Are you being sanctified? And are you serving? Where are you along that, that path? Are you just at the beginning or are you in the middle? Or have you stalled out in your sanctification so you're not getting to the point of serving? You know, have you joined the assembly of believers? Are you growing? Are you getting involved? Are you going out? Where are you at on that? If you were to think of your spiritual life as a, a racetrack or maybe a baseball diamond, some of you guys are uh, you know, real fans of baseball, are you just starting out? Are you on first base, second, third, or are you really serving the Lord and on your way home? As a pastor myself, I can understand Paul's concern. There are people who pastors pour a lot of time and effort into. They're running. They're laboring. These people may show initial signs of progress. You know, they're like the, the soils that the seed is scattered on, and some receive it, and, wow, this is great, you know. And, and then six months later, there's nothing to be seen of them. There's no, there's no active profession of faith, no participation in the church, fall away entirely. Or some people just stagnate and show no ultimate progress in belief, maybe for years. Or worse, they turn against the faith or against the church, like Judas. In those cases, it feels like the pastor's labor. And not just the pastor, but if you're engaged in this effort to bring people to maturity, like Paul, any of us, the discipleship relationship that you have with a young person or with a peer, and it turns out like that, you just say, man, it's just discouraging. It's useless. Maybe there's some deficiency in me as the minister. Maybe there's some deficient in the person on the receiving end. Either way, Paul wants to be able to rejoice and not be sad. But, you know, when there are problems in marriages and the church and laziness and lack of discipline and diligence, the things of God and so on, these weigh against the shepherd's boast you know, not that he is boastful, but Paul would like to take along with him a, a basket of fruit when he goes to see the Lord and say, Lord, here it is. It's all yours. You gave it, but I had the privilege to bring it along. And thank you for that. And I want to be able to share that with you, God, and that glory. And this then turns Paul's thinking to what's future. I'm going to go to the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking about what has he accomplished with his life. And he begins to write about being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, verse 17. And if he is, he's glad and rejoices. And so he asks them to rejoice also in that. So what is this idea of being poured out? He reflected that the possibility that his life may soon end. Remember, he was in prison. He was being charged by the Jews. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. We believe that he got out of prison this time and then went back in shortly after that and was killed the second time. But he thought of himself as a topper, as the whipped cream on the top of the pie. The pie is the Philippian service to God. The whipped cream is the topping on that 
service. Now, we, we're a little unfamiliar maybe with the practice of offerings that he speaks about here, but he's speaking from a very Jewish context about this poured out as a drink offering um, business, and he's looking at the Philippians' life of service as a sacrifice to God and his own life of service as a sacrifice to God in addition to theirs. And he sees himself, as First Peter does, as a priest offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. I don't know if you grasp this notion of life as service, but Romans 12 tells us that, doesn't it? To give ourselves as living sacrifices to God. It, it, it's, it brings to the Christian's life a metaphorical application of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament and reminds us that our lives are service and sacrifice and worship to God. And so when you do that, when you do realize that your life is a sacrifice to God, it can be offered in sacrifice and service to him, then that's when you're really living for God. That's when you're really living for Christ. Your life is being poured out to the last drop. You're really living with eternal profit. So the, the, the drink offering is sometimes called, this is a fancy word, a libation, L-I-B-A-T-I-O-N. Libation, maybe somebody would say a libation. A drink offering, a ceremonial pouring out of a liquid, usually of a wine, offered to God. Maybe some mixture that has incense, some, some very unique smell to it. Um, and you have this in the Old Testament in Genesis 35. I don't have time to go to the verses. I thought I would, but I haven't. I've run out here. Second Samuel chapter 3. These are also used in pagan offerings. So you'd have the meat offering on the idol, and you would douse it with the wine. You know, we kind of do that when we cook sometimes, don't we? We marinate something with that. It gives it a flavor or an aroma to it. Uh, this was poured out to God. You remember the time when the soldiers broke through the enemy lines and brought water from a certain well that David wanted, and he was so thirsty. But he said, the risk of life of these men that they took to bring me that water, I cannot drink that. He had to pour it out before the Lord as an offering to say, I'm not worthy of that. That kind of effort, that kind of risk, I'm I'm only a human. I'm not worthy of that kind of treatment. So he poured it out in, in worship to God. That's the pouring out kind of offering. And God, Paul rather, saw his own service to God that same way. He was a sacrifice. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 6. He saw himself as a sacrifice. Uh, Priests together before God offering sacrifices to please him. So think about your service to God as a sacrifice. Okay? Are you you giving sacrifices to God? Uh, Hebrews tells us, the sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips. That's also a sacrifice to God. We don't have animal sacrifices today, but we have plenty of other ones that we can do for him. And so because Paul saw things like this and he saw the end of his life coming and that he was going to be accountable and that he had this fruit that he was going to bring in this basket to God and say, here's the Philippians, fruit from my ministry. He was joyful and rejoicing about suffering as a prisoner for Christ because it was advancing the work of the gospel. It itself, that that suffering, was a sacrifice for for Christ. 
Think of it. He's sitting in there 24-7 as a sacrifice to Christ, doing what he was doing. Are you? Am I? Spending our 24-7s being servants of the Most High God. The natural reaction for Paul and for his friends in the face of persecution and suffering, what would it be? Complaining and disputing. Why do I have to be sitting here in this dumb jail cell? I could be out there doing something for God. Paul realizes I am doing something for God here. I am being a testimony. I am being an advancer of the gospel. I am sacrificing for him. At some point, Paul would be with Christ. That was good. But what was also good was having good results and ministering to others for Christ. That means that he felt that he was not wasting his life. You know, some I used that illustration about cleaning your room earlier or fixing up your yard and having somebody come and ruin it. What if you get to the end of your life and you, you spend all this time, you know, fixing your earthly room and not considering your heavenly. And you get to the end of your life and you find out <laughs> all that's ruined. Solomon says, where did, where did all your stuff go? You, you left it to a fool. And it was nothing. You spent your whole life cleaning your room and then at the end you realized, oh, my room is still dirty and I haven't accomplished anything for God. Don't waste your life. Truly a good and satisfying way to live is to serve God. You will never regret it. Never, ever regret it. If you could boast in that kind of stuff, if we could be glad and rejoice with our fellow believers when they succeed in bearing fruit, then we would be truly happy in Jesus and and we ourselves if we serve that way. So listen, God's working in you to hold steadfastly to his teaching so you can shine his lights in the world so that you will not complain and argue but instead you will bear lasting fruit. That's what the message is from these five verses of Scripture and context that we've looked at. Let us pray. Father, we close our time this morning asking that you would teach us what it means to live as sacrificial servants, as libations, poured out drink offerings upon the sacrifice and service of others. Lord, would you please help us? Oh, how we need your work in us to abound so that we might live successfully for you. We humbly ask it this day in Jesus' name. Amen.